You know who could help you out with that is Dana. <laughs> Reloading a, credit, <laughs> a Starbucks card. <laughs> well, welcome, welcome. You guys can move forward if you want to. Make them more, or, or, or concerned about the coronavirus, I can understand. Well, welcome back. Uh, we're working our way through the Gospel of John, uh, which in John chapter 20, verse 31 states, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So last week we looked at the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Today we're going to be looking at another conversation that Jesus has with a very different person. Uh, and yet the purpose and direction that Jesus takes the conversation is the same, to bring the gift of salvation through belief in the one sent by God. So one of the things that, that John is really good at doing is he identifies the place and the time that these things happen. So the, the conversation with Nicodemus was in Jerusalem at the time of a, um, a celebration. Uh, but we're going to skip uh, the last half of the chapter 3 in John and jump into John chapter 4. But let's, let's pray real quick. Lord, we give this time to you, and we look to you to give us the message that you have been preparing us to receive. And Lord, we ask you to open our minds and open our hearts. And Lord, I pray that um, this would be a time of... Um, of awakening and uh, of life in our hearts. Amen. All right. You can turn in your Bibles, if you want to, to John chapter 4. We're going to start in uh, verses 1 through 6. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. So Jesus had been in the Jerusalem area. He leaves the Jerusalem area, spent some time baptizing people, and, and when the potential for bitterness and jealousy among John's, John the Baptist's disciples and possible confrontation with the Pharisees starts to increase, Jesus decides to return to Galilee, traveling through Samaria. And it's interesting, in some translations, says he has to, and in one translation, he must. There, there's a purpose behind his, because usually what, what a good Jew would do would travel around Samaria to get to Galilee. Jesus must go through Galilee, or go through Samaria. Uh, some versions will refer to the time that he sits down as the sixth hour, and if you're up around 6 a.m. to start your journey after walking for close to six hours, 
even Jesus is ready to rest. So let's uh, pick up uh, verses 7 through 9. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? So from the woman's reaction, we can tell there's some cultural context that we might not understand um, here in the 21st century. Unlike the conversation with Nicodemus, where a respected Pharisee, known for their morality and concern for keeping every one of God's commands, no matter how small, and a Jew and a man sought Jesus out to discuss religion, this Samaritan woman is the opposite of Nicodemus in almost every way. In one of my study sources, it says, this culture considered men more important than women. It was unusual for a man to even speak to a woman. Also, Jews and Samaritans do not get along. And there's some history. So the national history is that when the nation of Israel had divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom was captured by the Assyrians. And in the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, we read of the decision by the Assyrians to deport many of the Israelites from the northern kingdom, particularly from its capital, Samaria. Many foreigners settled in Samaria and intermarried with the remaining Jews. The result of these marriages was not only blended nationalities, but also blended religion, blended worship. So Samaria was a place that worshipped the true God, along with false idols. Because of the mixed marriages and what would be considered corrupt religion, the Jews from the southern kingdom treated the Samaritans with disgust. So in verse 9, John says that the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And uh, there's a footnote in the New International Version that adds this piece. Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. There's a movie that came out, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and there's a scene where the, the man comes home from work and the woman has hired a couple of African-American guys to do some work in their kitchen. And she gives them a couple of glasses of water and the man takes the glasses and he puts them in the trash can after they leave. And the wife finds them and she's like, I'm not going to throw these away. So this is, this is a cultural context that isn't in too far of our history. So the north
<laughs> Sorry, I'll stop slapping the microphone. Um, do you want the thing? Maybe turn that one off. There you go. Okay, so where were we? <clears throat> Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. So the norm must have been that a weary Jewish traveler would have stayed thirsty and ignored the opportunity to receive a drink. So much so that this woman came, or coming to draw water at noon, kind of smarts off at Jesus. You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? But he does. And he probably drinks from her ladle or, or whatever implement she, she offers him. So in verses 10 through 12, Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? There we go. Okay. Well, thank you guys for your patience. The, light, the lighting's a little bit better back here. Okay. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob? Who gave, you, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? So we see again Jesus using earthly terms to steer the conversation in a spiritual direction. And it goes right over the head of the woman. How will you draw water out of a deep well with no rope or bucket? And then she seems to throw some Samaritan pride at him in relation to Jacob's well and her associating herself with Jacob as her ancestor. It's very tempting to argue the same things with people who appear to fit the mold of our enemies, isn't it? You're a Jew in my town, and you people refuse to have anything to do with us Jacob is our ancestor, and his well provides water for us, just like it did for he and his sons and his animals. How can you offer better water? Verses 13 through 15, Jesus replies. Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh 
bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. She sold. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I will never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. So Jesus starts to speak to her true need to be made spiritually alive, to be born again. And she responds from a place of personal desire, which is very typical, right? It's possible that she's coming to draw water at noon in the heat of the day because she avoids drawing water when the rest of the town does in the early morning before it gets too hot. If she's never thirsty again, then she wouldn't have to come to the well to draw water at all. Besides the effort and time it takes, why would she desire to not have to get water? The watering hole is where social stuff happens, right? What, what are we, there's a, the water cooler conversations, right? Right, you're at work and you're like, I need to get away from work and I need to sit by the water fountain and talk. Why does she draw water when no one else is there? Maybe we'll find out here. So Jesus, in response to her saying, please give me this water. I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to draw water. In verse 16 he says, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, she replied. The G and Jesus said, the Jesus, Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me. Why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? So when Jesus points out this woman's sin, and you know, I, I've heard different stories. Is, is she getting divorced? Or her husband's dying? Maybe she can't have babies, and man after man marries her, and Figures that she can't have babies, so he just, he, I, I don't know. But she's living with a man that's not her husband. and So Jesus points this out. And her first thought was that Jesus would want her to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. She thought salvation was something she did. But Jesus instructs her about the true nature, nature of worship, of salvation. She thought salvation was something she did. Jesus instructs her about the true nature of salvation. Salvation is not something we do. It's something God does for us. He saves us. So here we go in verses 21 through 24. Jesus said, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. 
for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus brings up her sin in revealing that she has had five husbands and currently living with a man that is not her husband. Why does he do this? If we fail to acknowledge our sin, then we won't recognize our need for a Savior. Salvation loses its significance if there's nothing to be saved from. She assumes he's going to ask her to go to the temple in Jerusalem to deal with her sin since he is a Jew. And to her, he's in a box and she understands that box, right? So she has some assumptions. But then he explains that where God is worshipped, where God is worshipped no longer matters. The Father is looking for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. So in verses 25 through 30, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. I, I get the, the, the thought that she's like, I can't keep up with what he's saying. Someone else will explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming out of the village to see him. During Jesus' conversation with the woman, we, we forget how scandalous it is for a Jewish rabbi to speak to a Samaritan woman alone. Thankfully, we, thankfully we have the disciples to remind us. They want to ask, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? But for lack of nerve and shock, they say nothing. The woman, confronted with her sinfulness, discerns that Jesus is at least a prophet. And after hearing about worshiping God on this mountain or that mountain won't matter soon, she falls back on what she knows. I know the Messiah is coming, and he will explain everything to us. And Jesus tells her that he is the Messiah that she's waiting for. She runs into the town, tells everyone. And what happens? The people come streaming out of the village to see Jesus. Jesus. 
you ever freeze up when uh, the chance to talk about Jesus comes up? Do you avoid talking about how God saved you from your sin? Why do we do that? Have we been convinced that no one wants to hear about that stuff? Is that conviction based on personal experience? Or is it the enemy lying to us again? So let's look at the next couple of verses to gauge Jesus' focus on this topic. John chapter 4, verses 31 through 34. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. And then Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. So John Calvin, commenting on this passage, wrote, By his example, Jesus shows us that the kingdom of God should have priority over all bodily comforts. Jesus' food was to accomplish the work God gave him to do. And that work was to advance God's kingdom, to restore lost souls to life, to spread the light of the gospel, and to bring salvation to the world. Two of the core beliefs of the Vineyard Movement is that we are a people of God who partner with the Holy Spirit, and we are a people of God who reconcile people with God and all creation. With those two statements in mind, let's look at these next few verses. So here's Jesus talking to his disciples. Verses 35 through 38. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages. And the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? You know the saying, one plants and another harvests? And it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others have already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. How do we reconcile people with God? We do it by partnering with the Holy Spirit. He is already at work in the hearts of men and women. As Jesus put it, the fields are ripe for harvest. When we first moved to Omaha, I participated in a, uh, an evangelism explosion class at a large church here in town, and we trained in telling our testimony, and then uh, we visited people in their homes to get a chance to share. 
in the hopes that they would believe in Jesus as their Savior. Now, I'm not saying it was a, a bad program, but personally, other than building relationships with the, with the people on my team, in the time that I was involved, I didn't see anyone except Jesus as their Savior. Now, that's not to say that the conversations that we had aren't someone else planting because somebody else will harvest. Because I'm certain that he can. God's Spirit can also speak to my spirit about who to talk to and what to say. He can invite me to partner with the Holy Spirit to finish the work that has already been started. The work is not solely on us. One plants and another harvests. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. That's what Jesus says. And we, we talk about equipping, being equipped to do the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, a couple of years ago, um, the, one of the leaders of the Vineyard UK, a woman named Eleanor Mumford, was telling a story about a, a young woman in one of the churches that um, had to ride a bus in town. And she gets on the bus, and she sees on the bus uh, somebody that she went to school with. And she's an, an, an adult as well. And so she sits next to her, and she sees that she has a baby. And she doesn't, hasn't talked to this person in a while. She says, is it fun to have a baby? And the woman says, no, it's a lot of work. And it turns out that this baby has a lot of deformities. He's got a cleft palate. He's got problems with his heart. And she feels an impression from the Lord to pray, to offer to pray for the child. She says, can I pray for your baby? And, she, and the woman says, yes. So she prays a very simple prayer. And then the, the woman, the mother, looks at her child and screams. The cleft palate is gone. The, the lip is healed. And then she takes a child to the doctor that she was going to take him to the next week about his heart, and his heart is healed. This young woman was simply taught how to pray for people. And, boy, nothing makes you fall in love with Jesus more than seeing how much he loves you and it, how good he is. One, one of my study guides says, we don't win souls. God rescues sinners and graciously gives us front row seats. So let's, let's look at these last four verses in the section that uh, we're looking at in chapter four of the book of John. Verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay 
in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. And then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Many from the village believe based on the woman's personal testimony alone. And then they were able to have their own personal encounters with Jesus. The work of reconciling people with God, introducing people to the grace and truth of the Father's pursuit of all humankind to save them from death and to give them eternal life. That work is not all on you. We can respond to the invitation by the Holy Spirit to partner with him in the work that he is already doing. I can share my personal testimony of God answering my prayers and protecting me and saving my marriage and providing for my family's needs. I can do that all day long. But my desire is that people would experience Jesus themselves. I can tell someone that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And if they don't agree with me, I don't need to defend Jesus. Jesus is the Savior of the world, whether you believe it or not. But my solemn desire is that people would know Jesus themselves. And that they would know him through their own experience with him. Our role is twofold. First, we do share the message of Christ. God draws people through his gospel proclaimed. Second, we share in the joy of the sinner who comes to Christ. People will come to Christ when we share the gospel, and we will get the privilege of rejoicing in their new birth with them. The conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus did not result in any decision that is recorded in John chapter 3. The conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well resulted in many from the city of Sychar, believing in Jesus as the Savior of the world. In both cases, Jesus intentionally steered the conversation to reveal the need of humankind for a Savior and to point to God's provision of salvation through the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. For those of you who have believed and have eternal life, you carry the truth of the light of the world. You are able to lift up the name of Jesus and allow him to draw people to himself. For those of you who have not believed, God is pursuing you 
And as C.S. Lewis puts it, God will be unscrupulous. He will do anything. He's willing to do anything to save you from death and adopt you as his child and give you good gifts and give you purpose in this life. If you're ready to put your trust in Jesus as the one who will clean you and put his spirit in you to give you life in his name, let's pray right now. Lord, I'm so thankful for these verses where you point out our need. You point out our sin, not to embarrass, not to shame, but to simply shed light on our need for something that we can't do ourselves. We can't do ourselves. So Lord, as we're thinking about, as you remind us of those things that we're ashamed of, of, of those actions that we've taken, those words that we've used that were hurtful and that we can't do anything about. Come in your presence. Come in your healing and your forgiveness and your light and your life-giving. And we say, yes. Take these hurts that I've caused to myself and to others and forgive me and put your spirit in me. I believe that you are the one sent by God. And that through believing in your name, I now have life in your name. And life not just today, but for eternity. And God, I pray that you would open my eyes to your invitation to join you in the work that you're already doing in others. That I would wake up and I would look around and I would see that the harvest is ripe. That the fields are ripe to be harvested. And then I would step out in faith and talk about you Talk about your salvation. Talk about your healing. Talk about your goodness. And that people would see you and be blessed by you and fall in love with you. And then they would believe that you are the one sent by God. And that God's heart for us is that we would be with you, that we would be in relationship with you, not that you have a religion where you want us to do a bunch of stuff to please you, but that you are already pleased with us and you already love us and that you recognize and you understand that the only way to do the things that you want us to do is by your spirit being in us. And so we say yes. 
Holy Spirit, fill us, each one of us, and equip us to be you to other people, that we would lift up your name and that they would see you. Amen. I think we'll invite the worship team to come back up. And if you prayed that today for the first time, you, don't, you're not in it by yourself. We, we love being with each other on this journey. And a, a lot of times healing can come through someone else praying for you or confessing your sins. So I just want to invite you to you know, either come up front or, or come over to the side. We've got lots of people here that would love to pray with you and pray for you.